Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. <laughs> Thanks. Welcome, and we're glad you're here. Happy New Year. Uh, you're probably tired of hearing that at this point. I won't say it anymore. Um, <laughs> This morning, we're going to uh, continue into Luke, like I explained last week. We're going to study in it for a little while and uh, go through Luke together. We're not just going to stop with the shepherds this year. Uh, we have uh, the Lord's Supper this morning, and that'll come at the end of the sermon. We'll go right into that when we get there. I also wanted to let people know, with the, with the new year, um, I'm instituting, putting something back in place we used to do, which is to offer a prayer time after uh, after church on communion Sundays, um, I'm always around if somebody wants to pray, but on communion Sundays especially, I'll be intentional about sticking around down here in this front corner. Uh, my wife, Laura, if, unless she gets pulled away on something else, will be with me as well if you'd rather pray with a woman or pray with both of us. Um, so that's just available to you after the service this morning if you'd like. Uh, would you pray with me, please? And let's uh, get ready to uh, look at this passage together. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, for who you are, and thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for bringing us here this morning, Lord. We thank you for the word and just to the, the strength and the hope and the peace and the challenge and the joy that we find uh, in, in your word, Lord. I pray that you would uh, use me this morning as, uh, as your instrument. Uh, these are not my words. These are your words that we're studying together. And as I, in my frailty, um, do my best to... to to encourage your people with these words, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would bring, bring it to life and, and help us to see what you have for us today. Um, encourage us, challenge us, whatever we need. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I read this passage uh, last week, it reminded me of something that happened years ago when my children were little. Uh, this was probably, if I do the math, it was probably 17, maybe even 18 years ago. Uh, we lived in Connecticut at the time, so we weren't here. We lived in uh, suburban Connecticut in the Hartford area. And uh, we had an aquarium. Our family had a, a little 10-gallon aquarium. It's kind of a bit of a hobby of mine. And uh, we needed some supplies, right? A lot of supplies when you have an aquarium. I think we needed filters or something like that. And so I decided to take the kids, to take our three children to the pet store, right? We're going to go see some animals. So they, were, uh, they were probably eight, five, and two at the time. Uh, that was their ages, and kids love that kind of thing. And so we, we went to the pet store together. Uh, when we got there, our older two children, so this is Hannah and Joshua, uh, our older two wanted to look at the reptiles. They just, I'm not sure why, what they'd been reading or watching, but they went straight to the reptile section. And, uh, and they were looking at the snakes and the lizards, and they were old enough, I, I thought I could leave them there, and I just was going to go two aisles over to the pets, to the, to the aquarium supplies. But I took Nate with me. So I brought our youngest, he's two years old, I brought Nate with me over to the, the aquarium supplies. And I, I'm kind of a routine-oriented person, I found what I wanted right away, same kind I always use, and it took me less than 30 seconds to find the right box and the right amount and take it down from the shelf. And I looked down to check on Nate, and he was gone. He was gone. Now, no big deal. I figure, I'm sure he just went back. He wants to look at the lizards, too. I'm sure he went back to be with his brother and sister. So I just headed over there, and uh, to my surprise, he wasn't there. Where's your brother, I said. He's with you, they said. Right? Good point, right? <laughs> so now, a little, little nervous. Huh, where'd he go? 
Uh, and so I, I retraced my steps, went back to where we had just been, uh, you know, look in for him. Nate, where are you? Okay, he's not there. Uh, I'm sure he went over to the aquariums, you know, that's where the fun is. And so, that, you know, kind of in the corner. So I went over, this is one of those big box stores, PetSmart, Petco, one of those. And uh, I went into the, to the corner looking for him where all the aquariums were. No, he wasn't there. So, so now I'm starting to get a little bit of worry, you know, I mean, I'd been entrusted with these children. Uh, and so uh, I was starting to get a little anxious and, and I began to, to kind of walk quickly, maybe even run a little bit up and down the aisles in the whole back section of the store. And, you know, some of those stores can be pretty big and, you know, I'm going to the dog section. Maybe he's there. No, 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 Nate. Maybe the, you know, the cats, maybe the birds. He likes birds. I'll bet you he's with the birds. No, I can't find him. And, and at this point, I'm, I'm getting close to the front of the store. And that's where the door is and, and the parking lot and all kinds of stuff out there. And I still haven't found him. And, and then just as I was about to hit the panic button and call the manager, there he was. There he was. He'd, he'd somehow made his way up to the front corner of the store where the rodents were. And he was watching the mice just happily. His little eight, you know, two-year-old looking up, watching these mice playing in the, in the cage where they were being kept. The whole thing took less than two minutes. But in less than two minutes, I'd gone from relaxed to worried, to afraid, back again to relieved. I suspect Mary and Joseph went through something a lot like that uh, in the passage we're looking at this morning. Uh, today's story is the only biblical account that we have uh, from the childhood of Jesus. This is the only, we have, we have some uh, infant narratives, uh, and then it jumps all the way to when he's 30 years old or so and begins his ministry, and as far as the 30 or so years in between, this is the only one we have, this single incident, which begs the question, why? What's so special about uh, the, the, this occasion in the temple? What's so special about it that it's the only one the Bible records for us? It can't be the only one we knew. Paul and I have both argued, uh, Pastor Paul here, that, that, uh, that this reflects Mary's memories. And clearly Mary has all kinds of memories from the childhood of Jesus. So why is this the only one the Bible records? And I think the answer is that this passage addresses the crucial question, the essential question of who Jesus is. This passage gets us into, very early in the book, the identity of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that today. However, this passage also lets us talk about something else. Uh, it also lets us talk about his example. And so I want to talk about both this morning. I want to talk about the identity of Jesus, but I also want to talk about the example of Jesus. And that's one of the things we pay attention to when we study the Gospels. We also pay attention, so we look at the theology and the personhood of who Jesus is and the things that he did, but we also watch his example. That's a key thing we do when we read or study in the Gospels like we're doing now in Luke. Why do we do that? Why do we pay attention to how Jesus lived? Why do we watch his example? Well, we do it because the Scripture tells us to. The Scripture tells us to watch his example. Uh, for instance, in John, John chapter 13, uh, Jesus will wash the disciples' feet. So that's the passage where he washes his disciples' feet. He gets to the end of that, and in verse 15, he says, I have given you an example. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. You should serve one another, Jesus says, just as I served you. Follow my example. He tells us to in John. Ephesians, uh, Paul picks up the thread. Ephesians 5, 2, uh, he says we should walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Love the way he loves, Paul says. Uh, 
Follow his example. Colossians 3.13 says we should forgive uh, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. 1 Peter 2.21, Peter writes, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 1 John 2.6, whoever claims to, be, to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. John's got it too. Follow Jesus' example. And so you can see how this theme actually runs all through the New Testament. Those who claim to follow Jesus should strive to live the way Jesus lived. And that's what we're going to pick up on today. Because you and I are followers of Jesus, we are called to follow his example. We should live the way Jesus lived. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I just uh, I want to look at this story. So we're, we're going to take this principle, and it's one we'll no doubt come back to as we go along in Luke, but I want to apply it to this passage. So we're going to look at this perhaps familiar story of, of when Jesus was 12 years old, and I, I want to take a, really a lot of time just to explain the story, look at what happened, explain its meaning, and then at the end, kind of the last third or so, maybe even a little less, I want to show you three lessons. So at the end, I want to talk about three lessons that we get from this passage about following the example of Jesus. So there are three things Jesus does in this passage that we watch him and we go, yes, that's how my master lived, that's how I'm going to live too. So we've got the story itself, and then close to the end, three lessons that we derive from the example of Jesus. So let's look at the passage. Uh, our text itself begins with uh, actually more evidence of the piety of Jesus something, uh, and, and his family, something we looked at last week. We talked last week about how Mary and Joseph were righteous. They were godly people. They were pious Jews, if I can put it in that context. And we see that here again. We see it here again. Luke tells us that uh, they went up to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover. It was up because to travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem, you literally ascend. You go up in elevation, which is why they always talk that way. And so they would go up to Jerusalem every year. And this was something Jews were supposed to do. Uh, they were supposed to go, actually all of the men were supposed to go to at least one of the feasts. Ideally, they'd go to three of the feasts. But not everybody, like all those kinds of rules, not everybody did it, right? Not everybody followed the rules. But, but Mary and Joseph did. They went every year. So it's another indication of their piety and the, the way they were raising Jesus in, in a godly family, a family focused on pleasing the Lord. <clears throat> and so Luke tells us this. He tells us this is their habit. Then he zeroes in on one of those festivals, one of those Passover feasts, and it's the one when Jesus was 12. Jesus was 12 years old. This is an important year. It's an important year for Jesus. The next year, when he goes back to the next Passover, he'll be 13, and which means that at that point, he will have become, probably before the feast, he will have been bar mitzvahed, and he will have taken his responsibility as a son of the covenant. He will basically be an adult as far as Judaism is concerned. Right? So, so, and that would happen when he, was, when he turned 13, at some point in that year. And so this is his last Passover as, as a child, if you will. And so it's kind of a dry run for what, is gonna be, what it's going to be like for him to be an adult man. According to verse 43, the family stayed the whole week. And again, they didn't have to. Uh, it, the minimum requirement to observe the festival was two days. You could stay for two days and then go home. But those who were really into it, those who wanted to celebrate the whole thing, would stay the entire week. And verse 43 tells us that's what Joseph and Mary's family did. So they're there. They're celebrating in Jerusalem. We have no idea where they stayed, maybe with family. We, we, we don't know how they... There was lots of different options for people. Uh, wherever they stayed, eventually the, the festival ends, the, the party is over, it's time to pack up, go home. Uh, no doubt there'd been lots of celebration. Passover was a very celebratory kind of a feast. 
Uh, a little bit, we can probably connect with that ourselves, right? Larry even prayed at the beginning of the service. You know, the holidays are over. You know, if you haven't taken your tree down yet, you probably should, right? I, I mean, it's, it's that time. We haven't either. Don't worry. We, we, we will, though. Um, but, but, but it's over, right? It's time to get back to reality. And so that's, there's that sort of a tone here to this. They're, they're headed back home now. Uh, there's only one problem. Uh, Jesus doesn't come along. Jesus chooses, the text tells us, that uh, Mary and Joseph head out with, with every, uh, all the other pilgrims, but Jesus stayed behind. And the way Luke phrases this, he makes it quite clear that the responsibility for this is on Jesus. He says Jesus stayed behind. He uses an active verb to show that this is an active choice. Uh, it's not like that old Home Alone movie, you know, Mary and Joseph forgot him. It's not that they forgot him. It's that he chose. He chose to stay behind. Uh, you might wonder, how on earth could that happen, right? I, I, mean, I don't know if anybody's ever like, driven away without one of your kids. I mean, that can happen, I guess. Um, yeah, but how, you, you think, how do they do that? How did they leave Jesus behind? Well, it actually is not as, as difficult, and, and it's not, you know, if you're worried they're negligent, it's not negligent. It's how they traveled. Generally speaking, and, and we can't say for sure this is what Mary and Joseph did, but it's, it's how it was done. Uh, people tended to travel to and from the feasts in, in groups, maybe even caravans, you could call them. And these were sort of festival, festive sort of um, groups of people. And you'd travel in a group for safety and protection, right? A, a group of 300 people is much, uh, they're more secure against bandits along the highway if you've got 300, if it's more than just three or four. And so, so they would do it for protection and security, but it's also kind of part of the party. Uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of fun going on and, and fellowship and people talking. And the evidence we have is that, you know, a lot of times they'd segregate. And so the women would be in one part of the caravan and they'd be walking along, but they'd also be, you know, laughing and gossiping and telling stories and all, you know, the fun stories from what just happened. And, and the men would travel in another part of the caravan and they'd be talking about all the stuff the men talk about. And, and the kids would be going back and forth, you know, was, you know, they'd be, you know, kind of going, hang up here and then run around because kids got twice as much energy so they could run twice as much. In the, and so it's, it's kind of a moving party is kind of how you have to think about some of these, these, festival, these, these festival caravans. And so it's very easy actually to imagine how Mary and Joseph could go an entire day and not realize Jesus hadn't come along. Mary figures, oh, he's going to hang out with the men this year. He's back with Joseph and the men. And, and Joseph says, oh, he's up, up there with mom and the kids uh, one last year before he becomes a man. And so Joseph doesn't think a lot of it when he doesn't see, Joseph, when he doesn't see Jesus. And the same thing from, from Mary's perspective. And they would have traveled about 20 miles. We know from evidence and so on that the first leg of the journey from Jerusalem back to Nazareth was about 20 miles, is mostly downhill, headed down toward Jericho. And so they would have traveled about 20 miles before they realized Jesus wasn't there. So they do. They arrive at what, you know, we kind of imagine it's the first stopping place for the night, and they're kind of like, you know, Joseph and Mary connect, and it's like, where's Jesus? Oh, he's with you. No, I thought he was with you. And, and, and probably like me in the pet store, they're not too concerned. I mean, he's 12, and, and so they just start kind of looking around and checking maybe some, you know, this relative's camp or this neighbor, maybe he's over there with them. And, and you can almost kind of imagine as the time passes and they look in more and more places and maybe start calling his name, uh, you could almost feel their anxiety level rise as they, they recognize after a little bit of searching that maybe a lot of searching, uh, they realize he's not here. He didn't come back with us. He's, he must be back in Jerusalem. And so uh, what else could they do? Well, they got to go back. 
And uh, the text doesn't say if they went back immediately or if they spent the night. It would make a lot of sense to stay overnight just because, you know, there's not street lights. And like I said, it's not a safe road necessarily. The, the, the course they take to go from Jerusalem down to, to the first stopping point is the same one where the Good Samaritan gets mugged in, uh, in the parable Jesus tells. So that'll give you a little bit of a feel for why you don't want to travel this alone. Uh, but they do. They end up traveling it alone. Probably the next morning, as soon as the light comes up, the sun comes up, they head back. They go back to Jerusalem. We got to find Jesus. We got to find Jesus. Uh, it would have taken the better part of a day to get back to Jerusalem. They got to go 20 miles, and now it's uphill. Probably walking faster, but, but they've got to get back. They get to Jerusalem. They start looking for him. Where do you start? Well, you start where you stayed, probably. So again, if it was with relatives or in a First century version of a hotel, we don't know, but you start where you stayed, maybe he's there. Nope, no sign of him. Well, now where are you going to look for a 12-year-old boy? Well, I don't know, maybe they, they looked in the marketplaces, maybe. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the marketplaces. Maybe he's in the synagogue, he always likes to go to the synagogue, maybe it's that. Maybe he's at one of the many pools, not for swimming, but the, the, there were gathering places. People would gather at like the pool of Bethesda and some of these other ones. Maybe he's at one of the pools and and, and you can, again, you can visualize, you can see them kind of searching. And eventually, as you can't find him, you start going street by street. You know, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, where are you? And, and it actually says three days. So if you trace the, the, the timing on this, it's one day to get to travel, one, realize he's gone, one day to come back, and then another day of searching. So the way Luke describes this, you've got a day of searching going on. Finally, they find him. After another, a day of searching, the way Luke describes it for us, finally they find him. He's in the temple. He's in the courts of the temple, sitting calmly, safely, nothing's wrong, he's safe, perfectly innocent, sitting in the temple, listening to the teachers of the law. Now, as we picture this scene, some people like to imagine, imagine it as if Jesus had taken over the class right, that he was teaching the teachers of the law, kind of like the, the picture I, I, I put up here today just to give us something visual. I, I like this picture, which is why I chose it, of course, but I'm not sure that's what, act, what Luke actually says. I don't, I don't think Luke puts Jesus in the position of teacher here. He puts him in the position of student. That, that's his point, right? Why do I say Jesus is the student here? He's doing the things a student does. He's, he's listening, it says. He's listening to the teachers. He's asking them questions, and, and they're asking questions back, and he's giving them answers. And some will argue that he really has taken over the scene, maybe, but like I say, I, I think he's presented to us as a student. He is a student here of God's Word. But if he is a student, he is the star of the class, right? He's the star pupil, and that's really what verse 47 emphasizes. It's his understanding of the law, the perceptiveness of his questions, the wisdom of the answers he's giving back. It, it's amazing. It's, it's the word that's used. The teachers are amazed. If any, any of you have ever done any teaching, you know what that's like. When, when, the, when you find a student or two who's really excited about what you're teaching and they're not kind of sitting there like this, you, know, you get excited too. And, and that's the kind of student Jesus was here in, in the temple. He's, he, he, he's, he's really engaging in a very wise way with what they're teaching. And so they're amazed by it. Mary and Joseph, though, are, uh, are, have a pretty different uh, experience of, of what they feel with their precocious son. Uh, they're not amazed, they're upset. Especially Mary. Luke doesn't actually tell us what Joseph felt, uh, but he does tell us what Mary felt. Mary's, Mary's upset. 
And if you're a parent or even, you know, even you're not a parent, you've been in, in this sort of a situation uh, where you've lost track of somebody, you can identify with the mix of emotions uh, that, that Mary must have felt, right? You, you finally find him after two days of not knowing where he was, and, and you, you, you kind of want to give him a big hug and say, thank goodness I found you, and then you want to give him a shake and say, what were you thinking? Right? You kind of want to do both at the same time. And, and that's how Mary felt, right? You see that in verse 48. It says she was astonished. She was astonished. Uh, astonished is a more emotional word than amazed. Uh, amazed. The teachers are amazed. It's more of an intellectual amazement. They're like, wow, he knows what he's talking about. This, kid, this kid's savvy. He's asking great questions, giving great answers. Astonished is, is emotionally charged, and it can be used to describe everything from joy to, to terror. It's kind of, you know, there's a gambit of the emotions. You say, which one was Mary feeling? I, I, I think it's anxiety, and she actually says as much. Uh, it, it, she says, uh, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We've been anxiously searching, another translation says. Right? She, she wasn't just kind of rolling around. You know, she wasn't kind of doing that, oh, I'm sure he's fine. Right? No, that's not where she was at. She was upset as she was looking for him. Her reaction raises an important question here, and I'm sure some of you asked this of yourself or have asked this of this text when you've looked at it before. And the question is, it's a theological question, the question is, was Jesus disobedient? Was Jesus disobedient? Did he do something wrong when he stayed behind in the temple? Have you ever wondered that about this text? Mary seems to think so. Yeah, Mary seems to think so. And I think that's the natural way to read her words, is to read her words as a rebuke. She thinks he did something wrong. Uh, the question is, was she right in that interpretation? And I would say the biblical answer to that is, is actually no. He, he didn't sin against his parents when he stayed behind in the temple. And there's, there's two ways to demonstrate why that's the case. Uh, the first is to look at the broader witness of Scripture, right? So to let the rest of Scripture speak. Uh, the Bible is, is quite uh, insistent uh, on, the, on the idea. The New Testament is very insistent that Jesus never sinned. I, I quote you just one verse, Hebrews 4.15. Uh, he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And so the internal witness of Scripture rules out the possibility that Jesus sinned here. But the other way, if you say, okay, that's fine, but still, what's going on here? And that leads to the other way to demonstrate that I don't think he sinned here, or I know he didn't sin here, is just to think it through practically. It's very easy, actually. It's very, easily, it's very easy to cause somebody distress without sinning against them. Right? If you've ever been cut off intentionally in traffic when somebody, you know, somebody cut you off and they didn't even see you, that's a good example. Right? They weren't sinning. They, didn't, they weren't like, aha, I'm going to get you. Right? They just didn't see you, and yet you've caused all kinds of distress. Right? That, that would be an example. But more to the point, kids do it all the time. Children do it all the time. Anyone who's ever had a child wander away in the store <laughs> knows exactly what that's like. Right? I think back to my own story. My, my son did not mean any harm. Right? Nate didn't mean he wasn't sinning against me. He wasn't being disobedient. I didn't say, you stand right there. Right? I just assumed, like you know, Mary and Joseph, I suppose, that, that, that he would stay here with me while I picked out my filters. He wasn't being disobedient. He was just being a kid. And I think that's what we have here. Right? And so what you have is, you actually have the way to read this interaction between Mary and Joseph and this decision of his to stay back, what you actually have is, is evidence of the humanity of Jesus. 
It's just another one of those pieces of evidence from the Gospels of the humanity of Jesus. He really was a real human being in every way. And so in this instance, he's just being a kid. He didn't clock. He didn't process, right? And teenagers can be like that sometimes. Adults can too. But he just didn't process that his mother and father would be bothered if he spent a few extra days in Jerusalem. Just didn't think of it that way. But actually, that, here's where it gets interesting. Because I would make the case, I, I am making the case, that not only did he not sin, but he was actually doing the right thing when he stayed behind in the temple. So it's not that it's kind of just a neutral action. What you actually have here, and this is where we get to the heart of this passage and why this is the one Luke gives us of all the the stories he might have picked Mary's brain for. Uh, The reason he gives this one is that this one shows that he, he did the right thing. What do I mean? I mean that he stayed behind because he knew who he was. He stayed behind because he knew his identity. He knew who he was. At this point, he already knows who he is. You see this in his, inner, his answer to Mary in verse 49. Uh, verse 49, interestingly, is the first recorded words of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. It's the first recorded words of Jesus in the gospel. We, we know he talked before this, but these are the first words that the gospel writers record. And no surprise, they are profound. His words are profound. What does he say to Mary? She says, we were in great distress. Why'd you do this to us? Uh, We've been searching for you everywhere. He says, why were you searching for me? Why were you searching? Didn't you know I had to be here in my father's house? And he didn't say it snarky. He didn't. He just, why why were you searching for me? Didn't you know this is where I would be? See, the real point of this passage, the real point of this passage is not to show us how smart Jesus was when he was 12 years old. The real point of this passage is to show us that Jesus knew who he was. Even when he was 12 years old, he already knew that he was and is the Son of God. And you see this in his his answer. He says, why were you searching for me? I think the emphasis needs to go on that searching. His point is, oh, well, if you were looking for me, you didn't need to search. It's obvious where I would be. What are you looking in the marketplaces for? What am I going to do in the marketplaces? Didn't you know that, of course, Of course, if I wasn't going to be with you, of course I'd be here in my father's house. My father's house. God is called father only 14 times in the entire Old Testament. Right? So you take your Bible. The entire Old Testament, God is called father only 14 times, and every single one of them, he is the father of a group. He's the father of the nation of Israel, I think in all 14 cases. He's never called the father of an individual in the, in the entire Old Testament. In the Gospels alone, Jesus will call God Father more than 60 times. More than 60 times. And this one right here in, in our passage today is the first. He knows who he is. Jesus knows who he is. That's the point. He knows he is the Son of God. So that's the story, right? That, that's what happened. That's what it means Now let's look at the lessons. I promised you three lessons at the end that we can learn and should learn from the example of Jesus in this text. So let's uh, let's look at these lessons. The first lesson is to value the seasons of preparation. Value the seasons of quiet preparation. Because that's what these childhood years were for Jesus. Right? So so really, this is an application from, from everything around it. The silence that's around this passage. Like I said a few minutes ago, this is the Bible's only account from the childhood of Jesus, which means the Bible is virtually silent about 30 years of his life. If he, if, you know, the traditional is he lived on this earth 33 years, uh, 
30 of them, the Bible tells us almost nothing. But those were years. Those were real years, crucial years in the formation and, and the development of who Jesus was and is. He, he faced challenges in those years, no doubt. He experienced temptation in those years, the temptation in the desert that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. That wasn't the first time he'd ever been tempted. He experienced temptation. He encountered death. He, he encountered grief. Most scholars would say, and I would agree with them, that Joseph has died by the time he begins uh, his, his earthly ministry. At some point in there, Jesus lost his, the only earthly father he ever knew. He experienced death. He experienced grief. He made friends in those years. He, he studied God's word in those years. He memorized the scriptures. He prayed. He played. He, he learned to trade. He, he lived a whole life, a whole life in those 30 years. And yet, as far as we know, all through those years, he never healed anybody. Right? The New Testament definitely gives us the impression that all of those miracles and the teachings that we love so much about Jesus, they don't start until that, that, that anointing by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He was always God, but that, that, all of that ministry doesn't start until after that. And so he never healed anyone, he never preached a sermon, he never rebuked a hypocrite, he never cast out a demon. Instead, all through those years, he was simply being prepared. God was preparing Jesus for his ministry and his mission. Sometimes we get frustrated, right? This isn't for everybody, but some of us know what this means. Some of you know, you know, we get frustrated with the seasons of preparation. We get impatient. We want to, we want to get out there and do it, right? We want to go do that thing we're called to do. And, and, and yet it feels like, you know, it, we look at our own lives and we, we feel like we're being left behind. You know, the army's marching on, God's army is marching, and I'm back here peeling potatoes in the camp or something like that. Students feel this way sometimes, right? Those of you in high school and, and in college, you feel this way sometimes. You know, you, you have this sense of call to serve the Lord in your vocation, or maybe even it's in some kind of a ministry call, and you, you have this tug on your heart, and you want to get out there and do it. And yet you're, you can't yet. You're in this season of preparation. Uh, moms feel this way sometimes, especially when, you're, when your children are little. You know, you young moms especially, you spend so much time uh, doing things that hardly anybody sees. Right? All this, you know, taking care of little children. They're not usually that grateful, are they? Uh, you, you spend all this time in that kind of stuff, and, and, and it feels uh, frustrating sometimes, like you're, you're, you're spinning your wheels. But it's not just younger people who feel this way. The truth is anybody in any season of life can, can have this sort of experience. Times when, when you're, you're, you're waiting on the Lord. We talked about waiting on Him last week a little bit, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, this is another place where we get to think about that. Times of waiting, times of transition. When times like that come, remember the example of Jesus. Remember what his life was like, and, and remember to value those seasons of preparation. The Lord isn't wasting anything. He's preparing you for what he has in store for you. That's lesson number one. Another lesson, the second lesson, uh, is to submit to God-appointed authority. Submit to the authorities that are appointed and ordained by God. And, and this is where I think the example of Jesus is probably the clearest in today's text. It's just, you know, this one stands out the most clearly of the three. Uh, I would just direct your attention to the end of the passage, verses 51 and 52. It says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. It's a phrase Luke keeps repeating. I think he's telling us that she was a good mom and we can trust her testimony as part of it too. But the emphasis is on Jesus. He went down, because you go down, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to Mary and Joseph. And verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
Jesus submitted to his parents. Right? He went back and he obeyed his parents in Nazareth. He, he lived and continued to live under their authority. Even when he was bar mitzvahed at 13, he was still, until Joseph died, Jesus was still under the authority of Joseph because Joseph was his father, uh, his earthly father, right? And, and so, and Jesus, what does that verse tell us? It tells us Jesus went back and he submitted. He submitted to their authority. And, and here's what really stands out. He did this even though he knew he was the son of God. I think that's one of the reasons this story is given to us. He didn't submit to them because he didn't know who he was. Right? Sometimes you almost you get this impression from some people, like, well, he just lived a normal life because he didn't know any better. No, he knew who he was, and he submitted to them anyway. And what's more, it's, it's, I think it's very safe to assume that he did the same thing with all the other authorities in his life. It's not just Mary and Joseph. Uh, verse 52 says he increased in favor with God and with man, right, with other people. Uh, which means he didn't go around making a lot of unnecessary trouble for people, right? He didn't go around making any unnecessary trouble for people. On the contrary, what did Jesus do? He submitted to the authorities in his life. He submitted to his teachers. He submitted to his rabbis in the synagogue. He submitted to the local officials, however that was, was, was worked out in that individual town. He submitted to the Roman authorities when they came and, and flexed their muscle. Yes, in time, right? We'll see lots of it in Luke. In time, Jesus would confront them. He'd confront their hypocrisy. He'd confront their oppression. But until it was time to do that, he did what Romans 13 says. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus lived that way. It's not just something Paul pulls out of a hat. Uh, it, Jesus modeled that for us. And there, that's a good reminder. It's a good reminder for us as people under authority in different ways. Uh, God expects us to follow Christ's example. And so uh, we should submit to our parents, right? If, we're, if you're younger, uh, you, you should submit to the authority of your parents if you're a follower of Jesus. We should submit to the, the civil authorities. We should submit to the speed limit. We should submit to our, our bosses and our teachers and a town zoning law and all those other forms that authority takes in the world. We should submit to it. Not because we're pushovers, not because we're weak, not because anybody's stolen our freedom from us or something like that. We submit to authority because we're following our Lord's example. We're striving to live the way Jesus lived. And so we submit. We submit to God-appointed, which is a key word there, God-appointed authority. Finally, uh, the third lesson we learn is that we should orient our lives around Christ's identity. Orient your life around the identity of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Jesus did. <laughs> that's what Jesus did in this passage. He oriented his life around his identity. It's one of the, it's, as I argued, I think it's the key theological affirmation of this passage. Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was the Son of God. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us when. It would be curious to think about, I'm sure theologians do. You know, when did he know? Did he know when he was two, or did he figure it out the day before? You know, did it somehow become aware to him at that Passover? We, we don't know. Luke doesn't give us any sort of a clue as far as when he knew. Um, I'm inclined to think younger, when, when you're two years old, three years old, and magi come to your house and bow to you, it's probably going to make an impression on a kid. But, but whenever it was, he knew. By this point, he knows and once he knows, that knowledge controls everything he does. Jesus orients his life around his identity. We see it in today's passage. Didn't you know I'd have to be in my father's house? Didn't you know this is where you'd find me? Of course this is where you find me, right? Because I, I, I'm the son of God. He's my father. 
And as you keep reading in Luke, we're going to see this, this was not an exception. This was the rule, right? In everything he does, Jesus orients his entire life, the way he preaches, the way he does miracles, the way he faces temptations in chapter 4, all of it. He orients his whole life around the fact that he is God's son. You and I should do the same thing. We should do the same thing. We should orient our lives around the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. We should obey Him. We should worship Him. We should pray to Him. We should trust Him. We should read His Word. We should share His good news. We should love people the way He loves. We should serve people the way He served. Uh, To put it simply, we should follow His example. We should follow his example and put him first. We should follow his example by orienting our lives around who Jesus is.